Welcome to the Book Lovers Podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. We're obsessed with books and pop culture, and we know you are too. I'm Joseph Henderson, the Media Specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the Media Collection Development Librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the Director of Adult Services. New year, new books, same hosts. On this episode, we're discussing Jess Walter's latest novel, The Cold Millions, which takes place in beautiful Spokane, Washington. In 1909, Spokane was the subject of free speech riots held by union organizers and violently broken up by city police. Walter details the real story with a large cast of side characters, including the brothers Gig and Ryan Nolan, two Irish kids looking for work. We break down the good, the bad, and the wild of Spokane and give our hot takes about epilogues. Let's get started. thought of historical fiction as any type of story set in the past. But once I started working at the library, I came to see that as a little bit more nuanced. So what is your take on what exactly historical fiction is? So a lot of people think of historical fiction as it's just set in the past, right? But there are actually tighter parameters for what constitutes historical fiction because some authors maybe 60 or 75 years old and just because they're writing from a period when they were younger does not make it historical fiction historical fiction actually is really defined as before the birth of the author and the reason we think of it that way is because one of the main attributes of historical fiction especially good historical fiction is that there's so much research and so much understanding of the world that's being built by the writer that you feel like you're a part of that world. You feel like you are actually there on the streets. You are engaged with the space, the city, or whatever location you're in feels like its own character. Just like now, if you think about the world that you're living in and walking through it day to day, you aren't just thinking about what street you're standing on but you know that there are three streets down where something is going on you know that two buildings down there's a party or whatever there's a whole world that's been sculpted around you and it's the same thing with historical fiction but if it took place in the author's lifetime it would be considered a type of contemporary fiction so not necessarily modern but say Say, for example, like James Patterson is in his 70s. If he wrote a book that took place when he was in his 30s, that would be contemporary because he had lived through that time period. Whereas for it to truly be historical, it would need to be before he was born and it would really need to be something that he had researched far in depth to make it feel like that world truly exists and is really real for the reader. So one of the distinctions could be drawing from experience or drawing from research. For sure, yeah. And I think another another element of that that is um, is kind of behind what what Jess is saying is this idea that as you are reading historical fiction, what you are getting from it is a more clearly defined sense of place and time. Yeah. Um, while that may that may be filtered largely through uh, an individual character's perspective, I'm thinking about the example of Hilary Mantel's novels about Thomas Cromwell, 
where you're really in Cromwell's head for the duration of all of those books. Um, at the same time, you you really do have this uh, sense of texture and and flavor of the period that he is living in and the kinds of thoughts about the world that a character like this might have. Yeah. One of the questions that I always ask of people when they're trying to discern if a book is historical fiction or not, I always ask, could this story take place now? Right. Or is it essential that it take place when it does because of the historical restrictions on characters, the kinds of things that they wear, what access they have to different resources like drinking water, like cell phones, like all of this different stuff. If it could take place now just as easily as it could when the story takes place, then it's really not historical fiction. It's probably moving towards something more like literary fiction or commercial fiction. And this is a question that one of my friends had once about Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which she's a very, very popular author. And Malibu Rising technically takes place in, I think, the end of the 1970s or like mid-1970s. But even when you read the preview for it or any sort of description for it, that's not mentioned at all. It's all about the characters and their relationships. And really the historical backdrop is basically just to take away the access to cell phones so that there isn't that kind of dynamic within the group. Which I feel like we see that a lot in our media right now. It's especially prevalent in things like Stranger Things of why did this have to be set in the 80s? Well, the only the biggest reason it had to be set there was so that there's no cell phones to sort of put this limiter on the characters a bit. And it's less about the historic setting of the 80s and more about just having that kind of limiter on the characters. Right. And one of the things, Carmen, and I know that you've talked about with historical fiction and how you feel about it is characters being able to do modern things in a historical time period yes, and what, how that kind of damages the concept of history in a certain way, because it's a revisionist in an inaccurate way because it tells us women have more freedoms than they actually did. Um, black people had it easier than they actually did all of that kind of stuff. And when we discussed, Um, To the Lighthouse and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I feel like that was a film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that handled the historical aspect of the relationship very well because it is realistic that these two women could not be together. Right. Even though they loved each other. It was always going to be a sad ending if they treated it with the reality of the time. Whereas there are some films and certain things for example Bridgerton which is a lot of fun but in that time period you wouldn't see interracial couples right yes um so it's almost more fantastical than true historical fiction yeah and I, I I think that at least for me in the case of watching something versus reading something if I'm watching something and I experience that kind of friction where I feel like I am in in the presence, you know, virtually of a much more modern character with a modern, a more modern and contemporary um, attitude or approach. It doesn't necessarily take me out of it in the same way that if I'm reading historical fiction and I do really feel like this is essentially a contemporary story that is set largely in a in a in a historical 
context, but it really the the context and the setting kind of doesn't matter. It could really switch out and right. be its own thing. That can really that can really take me out of the experience of, um, of reading it. And I think that is because, at least in the back of my mind, I'm not always thinking this about why I'm going to these books, but in the back of my mind, I am looking for that place and time sense of difference from my own from my own moment it's um, a true hallmark of yeah, historical fiction for sure is that you expect and you anticipate that you are going to be a world in a world that is not your own and that you could never really accurately live in because i mean it hasn't happened yet for time travel <laughs> you can't argue to me that it won't eventually, but it hasn't happened yet to the point where we can go back into the 1830s and see what like wild Montana was like right? or something like that. We can't go back to Spokane in 1909. Since the world building and the research is a big part of it, do you feel that there's a lot of crossover appeal for historical fiction and fans of hard speculative fiction? I think there can be. Um, with historical fiction, it falls into this super group of genres that I call like atmosphere genres, where the real focus and the real essence of why you're reading it is to feel enveloped in a world. And the other genres in that group with historical fiction are Western, which is technically a subgroup of historical fiction, um, urban fiction primarily, and then also fantasy so we would see fantasy readers. That is where you really have to build the world and construct it to a T because you're expecting your readers to have so much suspension of disbelief to a certain extent. So you've got to get it right. And it's the same <laughs> way with historical fiction. You've got to get it right because the people who are reading it, they might not necessarily know that you've gotten it right, but they're going to be able to tell when you got it wrong. Yeah, I could see I could see making uh, the appeal pitch for certain types of targeted historical fiction from speculative fiction, especially in the case of uh, in the case of fantasy readers, you know, fans of Tolkien or fans of George R. R. Martin. I mean, the pitch there would be in the direction of either like early modern or or medieval historical fiction you know there's there's obvious crossover there um not just from uh you know tolkien's research into the period but also from some of the historical settings and context and situations that martin's drawing on you could see that similarly too like with sarah j moss and sure. jennifer armantrout they're writing about a lot of these a lot of ya adjacent stuff yeah or but new adult kind of stuff but very medieval and so that can be an easy hook into historical fiction. Right. Or for historical fiction fans who are reading medieval, a hook in the opposite direction. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah but I, I could see, I could also see you making that similar, making that similar move, maybe even easy, maybe even more easily from the vantage point of Western readers, mostly because Absolutely. so many of those novels are already set in, in the past in some way. But I think one of the things that we're not, necessarily considering here in the in the speculative fiction angle is um how how much speculative fiction at least from uh from the vantage point of horror writing is already kind of set in the context of historical fiction where we're talking about sort of victoriana 
and um, kind of gothic uh, horror fiction. I'm thinking of a writer like um, Sarah Waters, for instance, mm-hmm. um, with a novel like The Little Stranger, uh, which is very much in that um, transitional moment between uh, the 19th and 20th century and very much caught in this emotional place of an empire in decline um, and wealthy families sort of in decline as the working class is trying to get organized and have a little more say in politics and so on. And I think too, there's that overlap with historical fantasy and steampunk. Oh, definitely. Sure. Yeah, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Um, And you have that time period and then also kind of an alternate history kind of thing going on. Um, So it really historical fiction can be a way in for a lot of stuff and a lot of other stuff can be a way in for historical fiction. Sure. It's certainly a genre that I have found myself gravitating towards in a way that I've found surprising in the sense that I never knew that that was necessarily something that I was on the lookout for. But when I've found authors that that do it really well i am instantly engaged and really drawn in and um and and find it immensely entertaining so do you feel like with the cold millions that was one of the things that drew you oh definitely you know i mean i'm anytime i open a book up and there's a map at the beginning i'm ready to that map is a real indicator. I'm, I'm ready to be excited about about what uh, what what's going to transpire. I mean, and and seeing place names on the map that I'm less familiar with, smaller places, and seeing the name of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who I was not aware of prior to reading this novel. Um, suddenly, I have a little bit of homework, and we all know now, you know. I'm a guy that loves homework, so uh, self-assigned homework. One of the things I really enjoy about historical fiction is when authors talk about how they came came about researching and building this world. And a really great thing for the nerds like Joseph with Cold Millions is that in the author's note at the end, he actually lists some of the titles that were a big help while he was researching this. So you can go and read them to gain a little bit more perspective about Gurley Flynn and the labor riots and things like that. Right. And the big inspiration for Jess Walter was actually someone's thesis at the university of Washington. And Mm -hmm. he tripped across it one day at the library there and was like, there's a book in this. And that's how he fell into this whole story. So we're looking at 1909 in Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. Of all places. I've never been. Have either of you? No. 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 I've heard of it. But um, in a little joke of to myself, oh. I actually thought it was pronounced Spokane until I watched an interview where he was at the public library of Spokane. And I thought, oh, I've been saying it wrong. And I listened to the audiobook, So the audiobook said it correctly, of course. But they don't say the actual name that often. Right. So it was just easy for me to kind of forget the pronunciation. <laughs> Spokane, you believe it. So that's how little I knew yeah. about Spokane, Washington. <laughs> I spoke can't take this. Oh, jeez. <laughs> we could go on for hours with that, but we won't. Oh, Spokane, we? <laughs> You're done. You're just done. No more. <laughs> so what, for both of you, we've talked a little bit about historical fiction, hallmarks of it, everything like that. With the Cold Millions, what do you think is the most striking aspect of it that really fits into that historical fiction 
genre. One of the things we just talked about in our chat about what historical fiction is was when characters, you sort of see the world through their eyes and how important that is to the world building because there's certainly been historical fiction that I've read, especially with female main characters, where she's way too modern. So she sounds like someone that I would be friends with and I'm like, that doesn't really fit with the mid-1800s. I don't know much about the mid-1800s, but I do know that your thinking doesn't really fit with that. Your thinking fits with 2021. And that can be something that takes out of the story. But throughout this book, he uses a lot of first-person perspectives. So you're able to really be in the mind of the characters as they're living and as they're dying. And that is a really great tool to really bring you into this world. You're fully sucked in and seeing it exactly as they see it. And and that works so well because you you also experience the limitations of their views yeah. in some way. So sure. there's a kind of necessary there's a necessary but productive disorientation and reset that happens as you move from character perspective to character perspective, despite the fact that you are grounded in a in one primary character's perspective for the majority of the time. Uh, it's when we get these alternating voices in there um, that uh, that that you experience exactly what you're talking about, Carmenia. Um, I I had a thought on this point about the experience of reading historical fiction, and I want to I want to take it and turn it a little bit because I think that one of the interesting things that Walter is doing in this book is he's actually almost inserting a kind of meta experience of reading historical fiction where we actually have a character who about halfway through the novel starts reading a historical novel, <laughs> arguably the historical novel, uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. And he uses it as a frame, the character Rye does, he uses it almost as a frame through which he can understand and interpret his own experience. And so we'll have these scenes, which are often some of my favorite scenes in books where you have other characters in a book reading a book. And I just love that because I'm a person who's reading a book, reading a book about a character reading a book. Oh, anyway, God, yeah. yeah, I know. Uh -huh. uh, but... But when we have these moments, we also often have those moments paired with other moments where Rye is thinking about his place in history. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking about, he has the insight that he is living in history in some way. But he also has this insight that in some ways he can be, or for a lot of people, you can feel like a spectator to that very history. Like it's right. a big play that's playing out in front of you and so on and so forth. And Prince, yeah, Prince Andre and World War and Peace also kind of has the same experience. Yeah, he compares it, Rye compares it to living, watching a parade. And there are the right. people who watch the parade and then there are people in the parade. And as someone who's had to march with a xylophone at a bunch of parades, <laughs> I can tell you it is much different. Growing up in Atlantic City, every single year we went to the Miss America parade and watching it as a spectator sitting on the sidelines, watching all of the cars go by with the contestants and the bands and everything like that is so much different than being in the parade itself. 
going three and a half miles down the boardwalk, (laughs) having popcorn thrown at you by kids, like that kind of stuff. It's like the things that you don't think about, about what history actually is until you're within it. And then it's not, in my mindset, not as glamorous as it could be. And another part of it is when you're in the parade and you're carrying your xylophone, (laughs) walking up the three miles, you're only seeing like the people right in front of you and the people right beside you. But when you're the spectator, you're seeing the whole thing. You're not seeing the individuals. Right. You're just seeing the whole big event. Yeah. And especially for us, we were the very first band to go because we were the home band and we never saw any of the contestants. So by the time I was in ninth grade, I was done being a spectator for the Miss America parade and that it's also much less community based and community oriented. You're not part of this like Greek chorus that is watching things unfold. Like you said, Joseph, you're really one of the people on the stage and that can be very lonely in a certain way. Yeah, spoken as a uh, multi-year participant in the Campobello Christmas Parade. Ooh! Um, yeah, I, can, I can also say <laughs> that, yeah, the experience of just sitting there and watching it versus actually being either on a float in oh, your Christmas you. pageant costume or in your JROTC uniform. Um, boy, it was uh, it was it was always oh uh, different. Yeah, little nerd Joseph. Yeah, those those JROTC uniforms were not warm. I can tell you that. Oh, see, our marching band uniforms were too warm. Mm-hmm. But also, it yeah. took place at the very beginning of September on the beach at like six p.m. when the sun is still yeah, out. Just wow. so warm. Yeah. Ooh. No guide. <laughs> so one of the things that I think is such a strong asset for the cold millions is the sense of place that we have yes for this because (laughs) yeah it's spokane it's 1909 spokane and i'll tell you the weird details that i now know about 1909 spokane (laughs) can fill its own book the largest one that stuck out really big for you that's very memorable the largest stage in america Right? Is is that what it is in the book? It's like the largest theater stage in the whole country right. is in Spokane, Washington in 1909. <laughs> which is because it's like something that everybody keeps bringing up as a sense of pride. Right. And it's like here we've got like the Daniel Morgan statue. No one else has this Daniel Morgan statue on top of a well, for a long Large time, I think you got to go bigger. For us, we had our peach butt. Get bigger. For yeah, a really we long time, yeah. we had the peach yeah. butt. Yeah, people know it from House of Cards. Like, that is our line to fame right there <laughs> is the, the Gaffney peach butt. So it's like that for Spokane. And the river, you've got the different neighborhoods. There are a lot of tenderloin districts that pop up, which wasn't even a phrase I was super familiar with. Um, I know that there's the Tenderloin District in New York City now, but I did not know what that actually meant originally, and now I do. And it's like the scandalous part of town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the party party area. Ooh la la. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Um, and it just it feels like you're there. You've got the Italian neighborhood where Ryan Gig live with this little old Italian grandmother who doesn't know how to talk to them, but she always makes them pasta. Mm-hmm. And there's an orchard in the backyard. And... Um, you can see the grub and the dirt and the grime and then up on the hill you can see the fancy parts of town like it just unfolds so visually in your mind that you feel like you're there you're looking at it you feel like you're jumping into the river with the guys at the beginning of the book when they're being chased by a group of cops it 
it just feels like you're in it. And Spokane feels like its own character with its own behaviors and motivations and different parts of the city acting in different ways and feeling different and having all these vibes. It really does feel like its own character. You're right, Jess. Um, Jess Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Jess Walter does so much to show Spokane as a character, not just the city. The city really comes alive as its own character, which is something I really love anytime that is used in fiction. And it made me consider um, an interview with the Spokane Public Library. Walter talked about how people often associate a poor city as a bad city. And he wanted to use this book to kind of unpack that phrase. What are your thoughts about that? How does this really play out in the novel? Because I think it plays out in a lot of interesting ways of a poor city being a bad city and how we have that concept. Right. I think that, you know, when we think of bad cities the first thing we think of is crime right yep and in but usually a certain kind of crime right violent that's guns right in the cold millions we see there's the rich neighborhood and the poor neighborhoods right there's like folks on top of the hill with their big mansions and ridiculous houses and that kind of stuff and then the people living in what the rich people would consider the slums um and crime perpetuates there's definite crime against your first amendment rights people are thrown in jail for that there's cops who are being i mean i would think extraordinarily racist and just arresting people because they look brown yes you know um arresting people because they stand on a crate in the street and sing a song like there's there's a lot going on there's a real effort to dominate there especially in the poorer neighborhoods and there's a lot of effort to curate a certain kind of city like we want to be seen as a good city where bad things don't happen so we're going to round up all of this bad people right and get them out of here but as the cold millions unfolds what you learn is that the rich people are just as bad only in a different way they perpetuate some possibly even worse crimes and they get away with it because they have money to hide behind so this idea that a poor city is a bad city and simply because of the crime that is perpetuated means that you are neglecting the crime that is inevitably perpetuated in a rich city as well. What do you think about that, Joseph? That's how I feel about it anyway. I mean, I think that your point about the obvious coded racially or otherwise double standards around good cities and bad cities works out it largely is true it you know this is the sort of this is the thing that um people uphold to largely refuse to think past any of their any of their priors right and whatever their confirmed biases are about certain places and the social makeup of those places they just let that play out and it turns into a whole moral thing and and so on but what we see in what we see in the cold millions I think is um, really does come down to uh, sort of, as you were saying, just a question of, of power and influence and who, who has the, who has the monopoly on that because of the money that they have, uh, whether or not they can hire, um, you know, private detective agencies to break up uh, union organizing or, um, you know, whether, uh, 
whether they're able to play you know both sides against one another uh, it's got that real squid game vibe sure it. yeah like um like early does who who seems to maybe be on the side of the union and maybe to be on the side of straight um, chaos yes. of 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 anarchy <laughs> but even beyond anarchy not even towards any kind of social good but instead towards his own desire to burn things down and make other people hurt um you know i think that I think that's sort of how it how it shakes out in the book where it's not to say that one of those views is right, that there are good cities or bad cities, but instead that there are these, you know, there are these preconceptions and these priors that um, that people bring to certain situations. And it depends on where you fall, maybe along class lines, uh, not just race lines as well. Sure. Yeah. The socioeconomic status. Yeah. Um, Carmenita, what do you think? Well, Class line does a great segue into what I think, even though that's not genuinely not something we kind of prepped. Just happened perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> like, because one of the things that I think that this statement Walters was trying to make was is about the intent, sort of the intention behind crime and bad activity. Because so many of the people in the poor town in this book, in the poor part of Spokane, are doing whatever it takes to survive. Sure. They're not trying to be illicit and awful their idea is this is a temporary thing and i can be i'll be immoral for a little while and then i'll have my freedom i'll, I'll be able to live a life that's truthful this is my way out this is my way out yeah. i have to do immoral things to get out of poverty and then we have people like lem that are wealthy and are like nah i'm just gonna be a terrible person because it's funny this is my way to stay in. This is my way to stay in, and yeah. this is my way to be entertained. Right. And that's right. what I re- one of the things I really liked with the class line and the bad or good city d- debate was Lem and Dell, where Dell is definitely an immoral character. He doesn't do good things. He does a lot of terrible things. He admits to them, and he doesn't feel guilty for them. But we have him who just feels like he has this kind of idea of the of the hardened detective in a movie that has one more job whereas lem just wants everything to be for his own entertainment like he wants to be for his own entertainment and he wants to do these terrible things to stay in power and to impress his friends that are in power so that he can stay in power over his friends right and so his thing isn't about getting anywhere it's about maintaining as opposed to moving up. And he yeah. doesn't have an end in sight. He'll just move from one ploy to the next. Yeah. Who can be the cruelest? Who yeah. Can, who can be Whereas the most even when Even when Rye and Gig talk about doing things that are bad or immoral or breaking the law, they see it as a temporary way. They're like, I'm going to do things that are going to get me arrested only until these things are accepted and I don't have to do them anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Because because following following the rules or whatever, if you... If you're looking at the at how the wealthy are proceeding, obviously they don't do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's just I don't know. That's just true. I was just Them's seeing. The bricks. Yeah. yeah um, I, I don't know. I was seeing a, a a headline. I'm thinking now of this because uh, Jess is here, and this is one of her favorite Hi. TV series. But uh, it was it was asking us to consider the Real Housewives franchise <laughs> as a study in white collar crime. It absolutely like, is. That's kind of the angle of the show now. Um, that's what it's turned into. Yeah, for sure. and and so you know, for something like that, you could 
put that up against other crime narratives um, that might be more gritty and that might be focused on homicide or street crime or what have you. But here we are. Here's Maybe embezzlement. That's Here's part of the reason why I love Housewives so much is because I like nonviolent true crime. Well, yeah. There yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Anyway, or maybe that's what led me to nonviolent true crime was housewives. It could have been. Definitely (laughs) could have been a line in for me. It could have been. Yeah. I think an interesting topic to bring up that's tied to Lem, especially, is the morality of this book. Because there's there are so many moral questions and quandaries that the characters have to grapple with. Um and a lot of conversations are had between the characters about what we do and what we don't. And I think for me, I'm curious to hear what resonated with both of you most, because for me, I think the one story that resonated with me was the story of Jules and Jules is an older man in the book who is kind of like a mentor slash friend to Rye. And he turns out when he was younger he saw someone go over the edge of a falls and was holding onto a raft and waving to him and Jules's uh niece at one point says that she thinks that Jules really liked that story because as long as you were on the raft you were able to make the decision of where you went and you always you continued to maintain control over your own life up to the very end that was what was important to Jules and I think that's something that really resonated with me, both as a story. It's so fascinating that this kid goes over the edge of the falls and it turns out that who we're actually reading about is Jules in that case. Mm-hmm. But also the morality of Jules and what he really wants and aims for in life and hopes to protect of himself. What about you guys? Was there anything that really caught your eye in terms of the morality of the characters in the story? Well, I want to say this with some hesitation, but I really liked the character early in the novel. Spicy hot. This is like Carolina Reaper hot take. Because (laughs) I I enjoy reading about manipulative, malevolent characters. Can I just say, when I read this, I thought Joseph loves early. Yeah. Not because I, mean, I not because I agree with them, but because I like the way that those characters work against other characters to draw them out, to help them realize some truth about themselves, to make some kind of distinction against another person right. in some way. And the thing that Early does that makes him so interesting is that he knows how to play he knows how to play all sorts of different parts and he knows how to play against the other person in some way to say to them maybe what he thinks they want to hear or to say something to them to get them to agree with him mm-hmm. and then maybe not realize how not always realize exactly what it is that they've agreed to. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and sign the paperwork, but you didn't read it close enough. I mean, yeah. And he is, he's right there in, 
Um, he's right there in the pantheon of sort of classic uh, evil characters, along with like Iago and Othello, whose whole characterization is all about what he can get another person to see and believe yeah. about reality. I think that's especially evident when Early is talking to Rye. Yes. And the, they're, they're escorting Gurley, and Gurley's not in this scene. But um, Rye is like, this is the right thing to do. And Early's like, is it though? Have you ever really mm-hmm. thought about what you're even doing? Mm-hmm. Whose side are you on? And he makes Rye start to question kind of everything he's believed through his brother. Which leads, which leads us as the reader and seeing it through Rye to sort of question his brother too and question the whole movement. And Early right. kind of gets in our heads a little bit. Yeah, right. Early forces us as readers to kind of question things as well. And I, I don't know that I see Early as wholesale evil. No. Because he's, he's acting with intentions that to him are the most essential. Sure. Which are the self. Yeah. You know. And... What I like about Early is that he is not willing to wholesale accept a side for what it is and just say, this is it. Check the box and that's mine. He's really on his own side. And he even says, I'm on my side, right? And Mm -hmm. always have been like any man, if I'm being honest. And really, when it comes down to it, when it's your survival versus someone else's, whose side are you on? You are on your own. That's just the truth of it. So in some cases, he's the most human and in a way almost has it the most figured out to some extent of all of the characters because he's not trying to play the game on behalf of anyone else. He's found a way to play the game on behalf of himself. Maybe. I mean, I look at that and I I think that this is also the the classic example of a certain type of of person who is skeptical to a fault where there's a, there's almost this desire to ask questions and critique things endlessly without necessarily being willing to accept or believe anything in particular. And I think that while that's there's like a there's a performance of intelligence that's happening there there's also this ground there's gr- this groundlessness that i i just i don't know i don't i don't trust it i'm there's, suspicious of it i saw a really interesting quote with Jess Walter as we were preparing this for the book club that said this is kind of a eulogy of the death of a certain type of man mm-hmm. um especially a certain type of white man who feels no need to take a side or to make a decision or really choose to stand up for something. And he said that he was kind of hoping that was what this is. And it was the end of this kind of complacency of the white male in a certain way. And I think early on the most obvious level, we see that with Rye that he's like, he's really a pawn and he's pulled in so many directions and asked to play for so many sides that he can't decide what side to take. Early is the one who refuses to take a side because he says, my only side is my own. But if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Is kind of the vibe yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And um, Early has really fallen for his own game in a certain way. Right. And after a certain point we see that Rye has grown older and he's made decisions and he's committed to things 
and that kind of clearly yeah yeah there are kind of, there are choices that he makes in his life yeah because of the because of what we see in the epilogue and right. how and and not necessarily just what he seems to believe about himself but also what he has attempted to impart onto his children in some way, although with mixed success. Yeah. Right. Whereas Early's choice to commit to his own chaos is ultimately what leads to his demise. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe the thing, maybe the thing we have to say about him is one of the reasons why he is interesting and also a, you know, a maybe a cautionary tale or something like that is that he is a, a just a classic case study in uh, believing in the like unerring power of your own intelligence. Oh yeah. Right. And <laughs> that's going to get you really far, especially if you're the smartest guy in the room, but what happens when you can no longer like outsmart your own circumstances, You'll your car, to... your car ends up in the river, right? Carmenita, what about you? Is there anything that really grabbed you in terms of moral compasses in this book? A scene that was really powerful for me as far as the moral compass is a scene that we see happen and then we get some sort of backpedaling later and we see what was meant to happen and what did happen and it shifts our focus of the scene. And so this is the scene when Gurley, um, Early, and Rye are... <laughs> yeah, Gurley, Early, and Rye. It sounds like a sitcom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a nursery rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> Girly is going on her sort of workers' rights tour, essentially. And they're trying to raise money so that they can get a very well-known labor rights lawyer to be the lawyer for everyone in Spokane that was arrested during a recent protest. Clarence Darrow, right? I think so. That sounds right. It's definitely Darrow, who is also either is or was very heavily based on an actual real lawyer at the time. He was a real person. Yeah, okay. So um, another way that a real person was used as a character in the story. And so they're going to all these towns and she's making these impassioned speeches. And because it's also 1909, she just has a bag of money that she's (laughs) carrying with her. Here's my sack of cash. <laughs> because there wasn't as strong of a bank system as there is now. And so right. she had no choice, really, but to kind of carry all this money with her on her person. So they go into this. Um, the way it sort of felt to me was a really smoky, greasy kind of bar type of feel where the workers are at after after a long day. And everything is like cloudy and grimy it's kind of like the new way before they went smoke free yeah that's how i kind of envisioned it and it's all these less like, color yeah it's all these swarthy men that are just there and being kind of not the best kind of characters for a 19 year old pregnant woman to be around you would feel like right. and she's still there giving her speech she gives her impassioned speech and they react to her the way she's used to people reacting what are you? You're just some rich girl that doesn't even know what's going on. You're just doing this to have something to do. You don't really speak for us. And they rob her. And then as they take her bag of like $5,000 or something, I think was the amount. It's a lot of money. Yeah. She gives an impassioned speech of basically where she says, yes, I may just be, I come from a place of privilege, but you would need to know I'm fighting for you. And regardless of what happens here, I will continue to fight for you. And even when you don't fight for yourself, I will fight for you. With every moment of my life, I will fight for you. And then they let her go. She goes to the bus, um, to the train depot. 
she gets told by one of her people that's sort of helping her that her husband wants her back home, so she needs she can't do this anymore, and it's a big blow to her. And um, they kind of disperse. They she tries to keep going, but then it's sort of they all go back to Spokane, and the trio kind of disperses. Later, several chapters later, you find out that this was all organized by Early to kill her. Right. Like these men were hired to kill her and Rye, to brutally murder them, to make it look like just a robbery gone mad, gone wrong, to shut up Gurley and to shut up the movement. And they, the, the men all had the plan to actually follow through with that. And then Gurley gives this speech and that changes them. And it changes their mind and they don't kill her and they just let her go. Now Gurley just thinks this whole time that she's just been robbed. But we see the full moral turning point for the men at this bar essentially. And that was just a really profound moment for me because it showed the um, what I was speaking of earlier with the moral compass of we'll do whatever it takes for us to survive right now. And that's when they had a shift to we have to do whatever it takes for us, the, ro- the sort of the royal us, quote unquote, to survive. Yeah. And they were like, we can't kill her now. We can't do that. We have to let her go so that she can keep trying to change things because maybe she'll actually change something. Yeah. And that was just a really poignant scene for me, especially when we have the, mainly because we have the going back where we're like, oh, she almost died. Yeah. And that makes me think of another attribute of this book that I really liked, which is how things unfold. And there are so many like little twist moments and surprises in the book (laughs) that are a lot of fun um, and really help keep the energy of the book up. Because if this was just a flat out, straightforward historical fiction or even historical nonfiction telling the story of the Spokane free speech rights of 1909 and 1910. It would be a snooze fest (laughs) or it has the capacity to be a real snoozer. Yes. But the way that Jess Walter writes it and peppering in all of these little turns and twists and fun things that happen and keeping the energy high really make, it compels you to keep reading and keep finding out what's happening to these characters. So would you say that one aspect of that twisting, turning narrative structure is um, kind of baked into the way in which he uses multiple perspectives in the novel? Absolutely, for sure. Like I think of, again, the not to go back to it too much, but the Jules story that is originally framed as the, the kid who's on the raft who goes over the falls that's very much another story of being a bystander of history it's just like a little teeny weeny version of it that unfolds and we find out that it's actually jewels that we're seeing on the side and on the riverbank but it's like we don't find that out until i don't know like four or five chapters later yeah you know we find it out much later in the book and we find out or we hear characters perspectives first person aspects of them especially in the cases of the women much much later than when we're introduced to them yeah certainly when we uh when we finally get a chapter or a section from elizabeth Gurley flynn's uh two-thirds of the way through the book easily two-thirds of the way at least halfway through the book and it feels it feels like a really fresh narrative voice in relation to everything that has come before it and maybe that's just because it's 
it's from an orator. You know, this is someone who makes speeches all the time and has this almost, I don't know, what would you say? Mythical, legendary? Legendary. Sense, Definitely legendary. Sense yeah, of like her, like sense of her, her own relationship to her family and what her family did and how the work they did and who she comes from and why she's here and what she believes. Yeah. You know, all of this is is in this really dynamic super short section but but it it for a second you you feel a little bit like you're listening to a a snippet of a speech from a from a time almost forgotten yeah and you can feel yourself getting wrapped up into it and what she's saying and then you can see how even in real life when she spoke that she would be really sucking people into what she had to say Carmenita, I'm curious. Did you listen to this book? Obviously. Okay. I'm just making sure. <laughs> Always. So was was the book narrated by a single narrator or did we actually have something approximating the cast of characters like we feel like we do as we read? We had a cast. Nice. With several narrators. And this is one of the things that is really helpful for me with multiple points of view. It is, as I've said before, everyone knows, it's very hard for me to focus on a book. It's especially harder for me to focus on reading a book when we have different characters. And this, maybe it wouldn't have been as big of a deal because the characters have such strong voice just in writing. When I've read some of the passages to prepare for the podcast, it's like, wow, this has such a profound voice. But it still would have been really difficult for me, I think, just me and how I learn and having different narrators. So we have Girlie's chapter where she's very impassioned and that's its own narrator. And then Jules' chapter is a different narrator and Jules is very reserved and quiet intentionally. He worked hard in his life to keep himself more on the sidelines, to sort of be the one observing, like going over the, the kid going over the falls. He was a watcher on purpose. And um, he... His narrator is very reserved almost, very quiet, whereas Gurley's narrator was very impassioned in that chapter. And, um, and then even the way Gurley is read when, she sort of not, when she's not the point of view for the chapter, she still comes across as a very impassioned character when a different narrator is reading for her voice. And it was just such a really great thing that really shines with the different narrators. That's yeah. great. And one of the things that I like about these first person sections that we get peppered throughout is that each one, Jess Walter does such a great job of defining and structuring their voices individually to make each of them sound different. They're not all from the same place. They didn't all have the same education growing up. They all have different intonations and thoughts and focuses. And that really comes across very well. And they don't bleed together in the way that sometimes perspectives can. Um, despite the fact that he's juggling like eight or nine or ten different people, it still feels like every single one of them has a unique voice. It's one of the passages I went back and read in the book, and then, of course, I listened to it the first time, but a place where that really shines, I think, is when Del goes to Lem's house for the first time. Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) And he... Um, Dell has all these asides to himself in his own head that feels very theatrical, sort of like in a theater production where the actor talks to the audience as mm-hmm. an aside. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, can you believe that he made a dossier with a folder and yes. everything? And it sort of goes, one of the things it did was um, Dell knew Lem's trick of pretending to be the chauffeur. So he just called him out on it when he first met him. He knew like the history of the actual place that Lem named his house after. And his aside was something to the effect of, 
if if Dell was in 2022, 2021, his aside would have been as if I couldn't Google his house yeah. kind of a thing. <laughs> like as if I couldn't research, as if I wouldn't research the name of this guy's house where he lives. And it's just such a funny moment of we see um, Dell and Lem's interactions and we see what Dell says and that's very different from what Dell thinks and that helps craft Dell as a person. Yeah. And it's such a great way of creating this character we see dell how he presents himself and how he actually is and both have such a distinction yeah for sure i really want us to talk about the epilogue here yes because i normally hate epilogues i don't like how they try to make everything super super tidy neat i feel like so often the epilogue is unnecessary it doesn't really do much for the story Harry Potter looking at you like oh <laughs> boy we thought we got the hot take earlier but here it is and I just I'm not a fan of them so then it says that and I'm like oh great okay but I really like this epilogue it does such a good job and sort of hits everything that I don't like about them and actually makes a good epilogue why do you think it did such a good job I think because we spent so much of the book hearing from Rye in different ways and we hear Rye from the first person here and we sort of see him piecing all of his life together in a way that doesn't feel like a early 2000s movie of like where they are now. It doesn't feel <laughs> like cheesy way. It feels a very authentic uh. reflection of his life during the early 1900s and his life now in the 60s. And how that impacted him and how he can kind of see it all happening again. And he, again, feels more, we sort of go back to that. He feels like history is happening around him. Jess, what did you think of the epilogue here? I could take it or leave it. You could take it or leave it. I okay. actually could, yeah. I, I. So one of the ways that I've described this book is a book with a lot of heart. And I think that Rai is at the center of that. And yeah. his epilogue and hearing from him and what his you know, the epilogue comes to us toward the end of Rye's life. He's not dead yet. He <laughs> he can't be, I <laughs> he's guess. He's not narrating he's from beyond the grave, <laughs> correct? He's not in this case. This he's is actually Cold Millions Lincoln and the Bardo crossover. <laughs> <laughs> cold Millions, Ghost Millions. Cold Millions means like cold uh, six feet under, actually. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The but, Haunted Tide Flats. Jeez. Oh, um, Rye is he's describing what's happened with his life and he has kids. He works for a union and he made a good living for himself and his life and everything that he's reflected on as, as a person. And I think that's a big part of developing the heart of this book, but I like an open ending. I don't need things to be wrapped up for me. I like when I can continue to just wonder about characters and where they've gone and almost develop stories of my own for them. So in this case, for me personally, it was like I could take it or leave it. However, as a book, I can see how wrapping it up in that way creates a really satisfying ending for most readers. And I think that's part of what makes it as well-loved as it is. It's, it's got really a pretty high rating on Goodreads, which I was surprised by when I looked at it. I think it's like a 4.1, which is most books don't get that high <laughs> um, yeah. on Goodreads. <laughs> Goodreads has a voice, that's for sure. But um, it, the compassion that's there for these characters is definitely steeped in the epilogue. And that's what you walk away 
from the book with because you're given Rye's perspective at the end. What do you think of the epilogue, Joseph? So I tend to I I tend to fall on the side with Jess where I like an open ending and I like to wonder about characters in general and, and, and so on after a novel is over because I imagine them still doing their character things wherever they are in, in, in the fiction space. But I think that the epilogue makes a lot of sense and works really well in this book because of what I think the book is trying to say about one's relationship, lived relationship to history through Rye's perspective and that sense of cyclical but different historical experiences over time where he's watching the news about uh, civil rights protests and sit-ins and and so on and thinking about you know labor agitation in in a similar way um, you know I think that that kind of circularity is is important and is tied into some of the ways that that Jess Walter is getting us to think about a character's relationship to history through Rye but I also think that it makes sense in in the kind of metafictional relationship to uh, War and Peace, yeah. uh, a novel with a, a monumental epilogue at the end, yes. um, uh, which is really sort of uh, Tolstoy opining on a variety of subjects. Um, my that was my least favorite part of War and Peace. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, I get to the end and I'm like, oh no, what's this? Oh no, there's another 150 pages. <laughs> and he's just um, griping about it. He's just going. But um, but I, I think with that with that connection in mind, I, I, I think that's another that's another point of, of of influence here. And and so for a novel that's getting us to think about history and politics and the you know, this the self's relationship to those larger forces and larger narratives it makes sense that we continue on with with this character because while the cataclysmic events that he was part of are now over in his life and he really is like the person watching the play on tv and seeing his children go off to war and so on and so forth um now living at a remove to the to the activity of the day uh, we, we still see him go on living and that's important because we do have that great um, epigram uh, or epigraph from Tolstoy at the beginning of the epilogue yeah. um, about what does it say exactly? Carmenita's flipping to it. Give us a quote. Life did not stop and one had to live. Fire doesn't get much truer than that yeah so so there is that sense of ongoingness that that we we have here even though it does feel like a little bit of a little bit of a closure a point of closure all right it's time for the reader's advisory corner here where we talk about what you should read next if you enjoyed the cold millions or things that we find that are adjacent to this story that we recommend so joseph what do you have for us I have two recommendations for you, one movie and one book. The movie uh, is a, a fictional film based on real history from 1987 called Matewan, 
was directed by John Sayles, and it uh, dramatizes the events of a 1920 coal miner strike in Matewan, West Virginia, and the multiracial coalition that essentially tried to lead the strike for better working conditions. Uh, Chris Cooper is in the film, as well as James Earl Jones and Mary McConnell. Uh, it's a great, it's a great film. Lesser known, recently reissued on physical media uh, after long being out of print uh, by the Criterion Collection, and um, there's a lot of supplemental features on there, as is often the case with Criterion editions of things. So you get some great interviews with uh, with the cast and with Sales um, about the project of making the film and filming it on and around the locations of the strike and and kind of in in West Virginia. Um, so it's another it's another useful text for thinking about uh, the radical and labor history of the United States uh, along with the coal millions. Um, and then the second title that I want to recommend is a book uh, by Ian McGuire, and it is called The North Water, and it is an absolutely uh, gripping and ripping read. I would not recommend listening to the audiobook of this novel while oh. you are eating. Oh, oh. Um, but oh, it is no. a novel about a it went surgeon. Up and then right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the audiobook is great, but just bear that in mind. Um, the, uh, it, it's, it follows the story of a disgraced British serviceman who's now working as a surgeon on a whaling ship in 1859, oh boy. uh, flashing back to his, the recent of his disgrace during the Imperial siege of Delhi, um, and, uh, his experiences, uh, traveling in and around the Northwest Passage. Um, searching, searching for whales. In this book, we are introduced also to an absolutely uh, notable character in that pantheon of uh, malevolent, destructive maniacs in the figure of an, one Henry Drax, uh, who actually opens the novel up in, with uh, a, a scene of savage brutality that you will know once you finish it if this book is for you uh if you can handle that you're you're ready for what's for what's about to happen this is obviously a novel by someone who loves uh tales of adventure and intrigue on the high seas has definitely read his melville uh but wants to keep you engaged it's a great great novel uh recently adapted into a tv series with colin farrell playing henry drax so um, that is my, those are my two recommendations. Carmenita, what do you have? So my first one is a book called A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. And it is good for fans of the cold millions who really liked the multiple points of view and the narrative structure of the book, as well as the basis, the historic basis around real figures. So um, A Brief History of Seven Killings takes place in Jamaica right after Bob Marley's attempted assassination in 1976. And it goes from Jamaica in 1976 through to New York in 1991. And it follows a lot of really intense social political movements and social histories and things that happened in those decades. And it's just sort of grounded around the singer. Throughout the book, he's actually mostly referred to as just the singer 
and you know because you started it and you read the synopsis on Wikipedia or Goodreads that it's Bob Marley, but he's never, he's rarely actually said to be Bob Marley. He's just referred to as the singer and it sort of grounds it in that historic narrative and in these historic cities while still bringing it to the individual history of the people as well. So it's really great for people that really love that narrative style. My other recommendation is a film called The Killing Floor. My second recommendation is a film called The Killing Floor. It was originally produced in 1984, but it came out in a restored home media format over the last couple of years. And it follows, uh, it's another one that follows history and labor unions. So it follows a man who is black and leaves the South to go to Chicago. And he works at a slaughterhouse, which was a big part of history of Chicago. It's a really interesting deep dive. Just that alone of Chicago is really fascinating to read about. So it brings up that historical aspect, but then he gets involved in labor unionization at the slaughterhouse and how this plays out and it culminates in the race riots of 1919. So it's a similar time in history, similar things happening, but how they're playing out in a different place with people who are black rather than people who are white. So it's just a similar thing going on in another community, in another part of the country. Yeah, also directed by the great Bill Duke, who made uh, the classic sort of neo-noir film Deep Cover with Lawrence Fishburne that recently, like Mate One, was just re-released onto a DVD. Uh, it's another film worth worth uh, seeking out along with The Killing Floor. Duke is a uh, sort of undisputed uh, master filmmaker um, who I don't think really got his due in the way that he deserved to. Jess, what do you have for us? Well, Joseph, you mentioned undisputed masters. So I'd like to talk about my friend Dahmer by Durf Backdurf, oh. <laughs> um, who I would consider an undisputed master of the graphic nonfiction oh, genre yeah. that we have. Um, my friend Dahmer is the true story of the author Durf Backdurf, Fred Backfred, <laughs> whatever. It's a weird name, but he went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer and uh well someone had to say yeah somebody sure. did a few people did it turns out but um Backturf actually writes his experience of going to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer in this book and what it's like to be kind of in the same friends group but you know there's kind of that awkward weird friend that everyone's kind of like oh I don't know if I want to hang out with him and that's Jeffrey Dahmer as it turns out big surprise <gasps> um and all of the things that really all of the many many different aspects of Dahmer's life that really kind of pulled together it's like a bunch of different cords that pull together into a net that holds him in and t ties him to what he becomes in history. And so it's really the, the perspective of a side character in history, right? We're hearing from, we're not hearing from Dahmer himself. We are hearing from Durf Backdurf and what it's like to watch this come to fruition and unfold and everything that happens before um, Dahmer begins to kill. And that's a really, really interesting, meticulously done graphic novel. The amount of research that Backdurf does in addition to the storytelling is absolutely incredible. It's flooded with fact, but it never loses 
the human thread of who these people are, including Jeffrey Dahmer, who was, even if he is the worst of us, still a human at the end of the day. The other book I want to talk about is um, called The Engagements by J. Courtney Sullivan, who we had here at SCPL a while ago. Um, But she's a fantastic writer. And this book is the untold story in part of the woman who coined the phrase a diamond is forever for De Beers in the 1940s. And it's a post-World War II story of Mary Frances and her life living with a bunch of other women in a tenement house working for De Beers in their marketing department and how she comes up with this. But it's also the story of four other couples following through the generations and their relationships to one specific piece, like physical item in their lives and how it ties all of them together. And it has that same variety of perspective that the Cold Millions does um, and this kind of untold story in history that we don't necessarily know about. Like we know the slogan, a diamond is forever. We know what the First Amendment is, but we don't know about how all of that stuff really has come to fruition and the fights that have been had over it and how it's how things have been manipulated over the years. Really, really well written. Uh, Courtney has a great voice, just like Just Walter does, and it's also a story with a lot of heart. So highly recommend that one too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via SpartanburgLibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, or to learn more about us, check out our website, bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. 